Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert. I am so glad you're here. And I am incredibly excited about today's episode. It is the first time I will be interviewing someone and uh, they are a great friend and I'm so excited for you to hear from them. Before we get to that though, I wanna say thank you to all of you who are listening. When I started this podcast, I thought there'd be eight people listening, most of whom would be my parents, family, and or my spouse. Uh, But there are hundreds of you out there listening, so thank you. I've got a handful uh, listening in Sweden, Hello, my friends there, a handful in Canada, some friends in the UK, uh, and there are hundreds of you throughout the US. So thank you guys for listening. This is, uh, it's, it's cool. Uh, if you like the podcast and you haven't subscribed, please do so. You will get automatic updates every time this podcast comes out. Uh, we air a, a show every two weeks. So every two weeks uh, will be a new episode. I've already got a couple of interviews done that will air in the coming weeks. And if you know of someone that I should interview that you think would be great to be on this podcast, introduce them to me. I'd love to have them on the show. And then if you've got a few minutes uh, and you really like the podcast, could you write a review? Just pop one up there real quick, real brief. Uh, Share it on social media. Talk it up with your friends. Uh, The more the word gets out, uh, the the better. I want to give you an update about my book before we get underway. For those of you who don't know, my book is called Embracing Love, My Journey to Hugging a Man in His Underwear. It's a combination of a viral blog post I wrote uh, after doing a public apology at the Chicago Gay Pride Parade a handful of years ago. Uh, you may know that blog post or you may know the famous picture of us hugging, uh, but it also follows my journey as an actor turned pastor. It takes from my seminary thesis, which is on the biblical interpretations of homosexuality, and it shares some pastoral advice and challenges for spiritual and religious communities. Uh, Just last week, I signed off on the final proof with my new publisher. Uh, So we have updated the content. We have fixed all these typos. We changed the back cover. We added some great stuff. And I'll be hearing in the next couple days kind of about the next steps, but By the next time a podcast comes out, most likely that book will be at the press, printing away. I'll share more about that here and on social media and my website, NathanAlbert.com, but you all will be able to get a copy soon. Isn't that awesome? I'm so, it's long overdue. Okay, but what else is long overdue is this interview. So now, without further ado, I am excited to introduce to you my best friend extraordinaire, Broadway superstar, husband to Nikki, father to Lena, the one and only Mr. Jeff Crady. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Nathan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It is an honor to be on your show. You're the first one besides myself that has been on this show. So it's a lot of pressure, (laughs) I feel like. It's a little bit of pressure. Yeah. Um, Jeff and I met probably 10 years ago. We met in Southern Illinois. Uh, We did some musical theater shows together at a summer stock theater. Um, and uh, I believe it was that summer where I introduced Jeff to his first beer. And that is true. we then, yep, we then eventually in our friendship got tattoos together, our first tattoos together. Also true. So right then and there, before I was a pastor, I introduced you, my fellow brother, to alcohol <laughs> and tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> So what were you thinking? I don't, I don't know. Wasn't a good pastor back then. 
<laughs> no, that to me is like the best kind of pastor. That's awesome. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I think so. so yeah, there we go. So I was I was being a great pastor back then, uh, but we were in each other's weddings. We've I don't know. We did road trips together. We oh, he appears in my book. Oh uh, yes, which in, is yeah, he's in chapter one of my book. Awesome, by the way. I just finished it a couple weeks ago, and if y'all haven't read it, you need to read it because it's really it's very inspiring. Awesome. I enjoyed it very much. And I love it because it's just so you. Like, I can hear you just saying everything in the book. It's very conversational. And I don't know. It was just like having a conversation with Nathan. I loved it. That's awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. So today's podcast, we're going to talk through kind of what Jeff does and uh, how long he's been doing it and then why he does it. Hence the why behind the what. So um, you are coming from us to us from Miami. Miami. Skype in a way. What, yeah. are you, what are you doing in Miami? I'm doing a workshop of a new musical by Tom Jones. Not, it's not unusual Tom Jones. Uh, yep. The good, original good Tom Jones. <laughs> I know because when I first got the phone call, I was like, Tom Jones wrote a musical? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell him. Um, but yes, I... Uh, uh, I'm working with Tom Jones, the the Broadway librettist and lyricist who wrote The Fantastics and One Ten in the Shade. So he's um, you know, he's almost ninety years old, and he is he's got more energy than I do. He's he's brilliant, and he's a lot of fun to work with. So we're working on a new musical down here in Miami for the week, and um, yeah, we're having fun. It's ninety degrees down here, and they're getting snow in New York. Ha ha! Take that, New York. I won that. So. For people who don't know you, you have a pretty cool story from going basically a music teacher turned actor turned Broadway performer. Um, and so when we met, you, were, you and I were working at an equity house in Illinois. But then right after that, I went off and did a tour. And then you went and did Les Mis on Broadway. So kind of, how did that happen? How does like, what were you, 25? I was 20. Three. I, I turned 24 that summer. That's right. So how does a 23 turn 24-year-old just get in to Les Mis on Broadway? It was crazy and very improbable. And when I look back at it now, I realize how ridiculous it was. But at the time, I didn't realize that it was quite so ridiculous. Um, I was a music major. I was a music ed major at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, my hometown. And... That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a, a high school music teacher and uh, maybe eventually do choral conducting at the college level. But uh, that was my real passion at the time. And um, my girlfriend at the time was a music theater major. And she was the one who said, hey, you have the summer off as a teacher. Why don't you come and audition with me for some summer stock? And so uh, we auditioned together and we got cast at the Little Theater on the Square. And that was the year before you and I, so then, but, um, so I did two years at the Little Theater on the Square, the second year where I met Nathan, and um, uh, that was kind of what got the ball rolling for me. It was just supposed to be a 12-week, you know, summer fling of sorts where I got to do some theater in the cornfields of Illinois. Um, but just a few weeks into that first contract, I knew that this is what I wanted to be doing. I... I had such a such an experience. And you know, we didn't make any money doing that. I think we made $175 a week. And 
We're, we're literally scrubbing the toilets. I remember when they gave me, remember we had like, um, like chores, we had assignments, and my assignment was the men's bathroom downstairs that I was supposed to keep it clean for the summer. And I will never forget getting that assignment and being like, what, I'm scrubbing toilets as a quote unquote professional actor? Yes, and, yeah. And you know, we were working like 16 hour days sometimes because we'd rehearse the kids show in the morning and a different show in the afternoon and then perform a third show at night. Yeah, for people who don't know, Summerstock is, I mean, it is the most insane thing ever. You go from, like you said, you are, you do a show, you rehearse it in two weeks, usually, well, even 10 days. 10 days, You start yeah. performing it. Once you start performing that show, you already are rehearsing your second show, well, like you said, throughout the day, performing in the evening, and then once you open the second show, you start the third show and the fourth show. And the th- so we did like... I don't know, five or six shows yeah. together. Um, I also, I, th- I think I got electrocuted that summer. Like, I think my job at one of the shows was to, like, <laughs> take care of the lights or the lighting system, and I was up on a ladder, and then I went to unplug something, and my whole body just s- tingled like crazy, and then the, uh, the the head electrician came over and was, like, like freaked out. Don't do that. Yeah, freaked <laughs> like- out because the power was still on, and, like... Why would you put your finger in that light socket? That's right, not right. a thing. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you put actors in charge of other things. You know? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible idea. But yeah, you know, we were taking care of costumes and lights and sound, and we had to do all kinds of stuff for no money. But it was such a great experience that I just, I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. And so I left my, I was teaching elementary music at the time. I was teaching kindergarten through third grade music. And so I left that job. With kind of no prospects, um, I certainly didn't have anything lined up and uh, just took this leap of faith that hopefully something would turn up. And the theater industry is so small that just from that one job at the Little Theater on the Square, then I, I got a couple more jobs. And um, so I started doing regional dinner theater and uh, something that you know a lot about. That's right. Regional dinner theater. I remember doing Cats which was the first um, dinner theater job that I had. And uh, Cats at a dinner theater is not awesome because we were out there crawling around on the floor as cats, like in the audience, and they've just had mashed potatoes and gravy, and it's on the floor. So you're actually crawling through it. It was disgusting. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did... Uh, I did a couple other shows, but once I was at... Um, in Pennsylvania, at, a, at another dinner theater, I was finally close enough to New York to drive in for my first New York City audition. So I drove in from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I drove into New York City, and I really just went to what's called an open call for the practice because uh, I had never auditioned in New York before, and I wanted to, I wanted to experience that because auditioning in New York City is a very different thing uh, than auditioning just about anywhere else. So I went through backstage, the actor's newspaper, and picked out an audition. And it was one that I knew I had no chance of getting. I knew I had no chance of getting Les Mis on Broadway from an open call. So I went for fun. And I got there at 6.30 in the morning, and I waited all day until about 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon. And then the audition monitor came out of the room, and he said, Okay, we've got time for a few non-equity guys 
uh, but you only have time to sing eight bars. So I had driven three hours in from Pennsylvania. I slept on a stranger's couch, um, like a friend of a friend of a friend's apartment let, let me crash there, and uh, got up at five so I could be to the audition by 6.30 and wait in line, and then waited on that hardwood floor for 10 hours and uh, got to sing eight bars. So by the time my eight bars came, I did not care. I mean, I really, I did not care at all. I just wanted to go home. And um, I sang my eight bars, and they went, well. And I said, thank you very much, and started to leave. And they said, wait, why don't you finish the song? And to me, that was, that was a victory. That was enough. I got to finish my song for a, for a Broadway casting call. And um, then they asked me a few questions, and that was it. So how many people were there as you're waiting in line for this open call? I mean, as non-equity... Well, they, there, were, there were 230 equity guys that had signed up for the audition. And I don't know if all of them showed up because you could sign up a couple days before. So, but that's, that's how many were on the equity list. And so then I was the third person on the non-equity list but because I was there at 6.30 in the morning. I was there at 6.30 in the morning and still wasn't the first person on the list, which was crazy. Well, you're a slacker. Yeah. I mean, basically... <laughs> Gee, I mean, if you were really, if you really wanted to perform, Jeff, you would have right? been number one. But. So uh, there were, you know, there were a lot of guys, and the thing was, was all of those guys were great, and they all looked and sounded just like me. I, I feel like so many times there's there's no rhyme or reason to to so much of this, um, because I listened to some amazing auditions that day, and so when I finished my song and said thank you, um, I was content for that to be it, but then I got a call back a few days later. Like, what was it like when you got the phone call that you, you're gonna be in a Broadway show? I looked down at my phone and I saw that the casting director from Les Mis was calling, and I was walking into an audition for West Side Story. And so it was funny then that I had to sing Something's Coming from West Side Story while I couldn't take a call from, from this casting director. And the lyrics are, could be, who knows, there's something due any day. I will know right away soon as it shows. Um, and it talks about a phone call and it talks about something cannonballing down through the sky. And, and all of these lyrics were so apropos because I just wanted to get out there and, and listen to the message. And all the message said was, please give us a call. And so when I called and talked to the casting director, she said, Jeff, I just want you to know that the Les Mis team loves you and they want you to be in the ensemble uh, of Les Mis this fall. And I, I was speechless. I really, I, I think it's the only time in my life where I truly, I had no words. I didn't know what to say. I was, it was like I couldn't breathe. And it was to the point where Dunya, who was on the line, said, hello, are you still there? And I said, yes, I, I am. I just, I, I don't know what to say. Thank you. Oh, oh my God, this means I have to get my equity card. This means I have to move to New York. And you know, all these realizations come crashing down that your life is about to change in, in a way that I, well, in a way that I never expected. And um, so it was pretty overwhelming and powerful. So I spent the next three hours calling every mentor, every teacher, uh, and my family, and, and uh, that was a good day. May 1st. And so you're 23. I was 23, yeah. And you're going to be in the ensemble, Jean Valjean's understudy in the revival of Les Mis, and then, I mean, since then, you, that was 10 years ago, right? 
Mm -hmm. So since then, you've you've been doing Broadway shows since. So what are some of those? What are some of those shows that you that you've done? I did the so I did the whole run of the Les Mis revival in two thousand six. So we closed January of two thousand eight, and then I was luckily um, lucky enough to be cast in Sunny in the Park with George, which started rehearsals that that same month. So uh, I did Sunny in the Park with George. I was a standby for for that show. Um, which means that I was an understudy, but I wasn't on stage every night. I was an off-stage understudy, um, uh, waiting if, if one of the guys had to call out sick. So I did Sunny in the Park with George, and then I did Billy Elliot, the musical, by Elton John. And um, most recently, I did Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Which was phenomenal. All those shows, oh. are, all those shows are phenomenal. And I saw, most, I saw all of them. Oh, no, not Sunny in the Park with George. But I did see all the others, so... I, I feel like I've, I've gotten really lucky with my Broadway shows because my wife, Nikki, keeps telling me, she says, you know, you're due for a flop. <laughs> <laughs> and she's probably right. So, and you met your wife in Les Mis, right? Yes. Yes. We were both understudies. She was a Fontaine understudy to start, and I was a Valjean understudy. And um, we, so we just, we got to be good friends. That whole cast was really close. You know, it's interesting how some casts are closer than others, and Sometimes you're just going to work, you know, you're just going to work and these people are your coworkers, and um, it's not unfriendly, but it's just, you know, you're all showing up to do a job. And then there's other shows where the cast is like family and that's what Les Mis was. We were, we were a family and we played poker together between shows on two show days and uh, over the poker table, I got to know Nikki really well as a friend and then about a year after the show started rehearsals, we started dating and the rest is history. And the first, the first day of rehearsal, actually, John Caird, the director of Les Mis, said, you know, Les Mis has a way of bringing people together, and I predict that from this show, a union shall happen and a child shall be born. And so when... Uh, what? Yeah. That's your life. That's true. <laughs> and both Nikki and I at the time, when he said that, you know, we were like, well, it's not going to be me. You know, like, we didn't foresee that happening at all, and... Um, so when I proposed to Nikki, John was one of the first people I emailed to let him know, just so you know, your prediction is, your prophecy is coming true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so she's done numerous Broadway shows, right? And current, I mean, yeah. most recently, lead in the Book of Mormon, or female lead in Book yeah. of Mormon. She's doing 1776 right now. Um, so that's exciting. She's on her 10th Broadway show, which is just wow. crazy. And your daughter, Lena, is probably going to be in a Broadway show within a couple hours. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I, we're, you know, we're, we're trying our best to like give her a normal childhood and keep her out of performing, but it's not going well so far. <laughs> yeah, she's, def she's already a performer. What I think for a lot of people, right, they hear about Broadway and they hear like, or they go see a Broadway show and it's magical, it's, it's powerful, it's, um, you know, it, it seems like it's glamorous, but... It's not always glamorous, right? I mean, we know that as like <laughs> right. performers, yeah. but what, w share a story or a time where like, it wasn't glamorous. What, I mean, enlighten us. Well, I, I think, first of all, just the space backstage. You know, all of these Broadway houses were built for a different time. They weren't built for shows like Wicked, you know, that are huge. They, they were built for vaudeville. So. The, the space backstage is 
so small, and the dressing rooms are so small. And during Billy Elliot, when I was playing Tony, the Billy's older brother, there were three of us, three guys, in a room that was, I don't know, seven feet by seven feet. It was, if that, I mean, and one of them won a Tony Award. Greg Jabara won a Tony Award, but was sharing the smallest dressing room you've ever seen with two other guys. And it's just because there's no space. Um, and so they spend any money on the theater out front, not not backstage. It's small and dingy, and that's just what it is. Yeah, like, I mean, I remember visiting you when you were doing Jean Valjean, and they hung costumes and set pieces in the fly system because they had no backstage space. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And some of your dressing rooms were, I mean, you hiked, I don't know what, eight stories up. But yeah, my dressing room was on the fifth floor of, of that building, and that's very common. I mean, they're five-store five-story buildings, and that's where they put the actors' dressing rooms are on the fifth floor. So you do a lot of stairs. You do a, you do a lot of stairs. So that's certainly one thing. I think another, when you, when you said glamorous, I was instantly taken back to um, Billy Elliot. I had to perform as a giant dancing dress. <laughs> <laughs> you remember. I do. I think that... Be proud. Not, not, I mean, how many people in the world get to say that? Four? Eight of you? you know, I mean, it's, I it's just, a small club. I just remember being on stage during tech, uh, you know, and, and technical rehearsals for a show take hours, days. And we spent about two days of technical rehearsals uh, before the show opened on that number. So for, for days, we were standing in these in these 10-foot-tall foam dresses. We each had, had like a puppet dress that we were controlling that we had to do a tap dance in. And I just remember standing there one day, and it was so hot, and the lights add to the heat, and we had to stand still while they were setting the lights. And I remember after about four hours of being in this giant dancing dress and sweating and um, just miserable, thinking, this is my life. This is life on Broadway. This is... This is what I dreamed of as a child. I had no idea just how unglamorous it is. And the worst part about those were, to add insult to injury, the worst part about those were if you fell down in one of those dresses, there was no way you could get up. <laughs> there was no way. <laughs> it was like a turtle on, their, on, on its shell. Because if you fell down, and it happened frequently in those things because they were so heavy. I never fell, I will say. I never fell. But we were in slip, slick tap shoes, and we were on a raked stage, so it was on an incline. And, man, if you went down in that dress, that was it. You were done for. You just had to, like, scoot yourself off stage. <laughs> and I, re I remember watching one night when two dresses went down. It was like, oh, there goes one. There goes another. And they were just floundering on stage. And Your, your prayer that, was like, please, Lord, not me. Please. Please, not, not me. Not the next just one, yeah. Let me survive this moment. So... It's not glamorous all the time. I mean, and we both know, I mean, there are shows, I mean, you did Les Mis for two years, Billy Elliot for two, I mean, it becomes very rote, it becomes, I mean, you're doing the exact same songs, same dance routines, almost to the exact minute every night. So it becomes almost like a, a factory job. So, and since the show is called The Why Behind the What, um, that's what you do, but so why do you do it? Why do you do what you do? What drives you? What's the, what's, what keeps you doing this? Um, part of it is I'm not very good at anything else. <laughs> I mean, I've got this friend who's so multi-talented. 
he's not only an actor, but then he became a minister and now he writes books. And so, you know, if I oh, were, I oh, you see what I, I see. did there? But <laughs> I if, <laughs> if I were good at anything else, I might be doing it. Um, that's that's the, the cynical answer. But the truth is, um, I like telling stories. I, I do. I, that is my passion. And, and the other night when I was reading a book to Lena, uh, my daughter, at bedtime, I realized even just reading her a story at night, I love that. I love interpreting a Dr. Seuss book for all that it's worth and getting all the, the characters out. And um, that's always been what I, what I love to do, be it, through, um, be it through song, be it through music, or, or through um, dialogue. I like telling stories. And that's what keeps me going. So there are days, yes, when you walk into a Broadway theater and it's just a job. And I think if there's any piece of advice that I wish somebody had given me going into this career field, um, I, I wish that somebody would have just told me, look, in some ways, this job is going to be no different than your first job at Walgreens as a stock boy was. There's going to be some days that you don't want to go into work that you wish you could call out sick. Um, but on those days, I just remind myself that I have this great privilege of being able to hopefully affect somebody in the, in the audience. And those are the cliches that we tell ourselves as actors. You know, remember that somebody out there is seeing their first Broadway show and, you know, people, people throw those around, but it's true. That is true. My first Broadway show changed my life. When, when I saw my first Broadway show when I was a freshman in high school, that was life-changing to me. And so uh, the days when it starts to feel like muscle memory, you just remind yourself that somewhere out there is a, a freshman in high school seeing their very first Broadway show, and you've got a responsibility to them to tell the best story that you can. That's awesome. And so what are some of the struggles of your career? Um, some of it you've alluded to. It's work. It's monotonous. It's hard work, all that, all of that. But what are, what are some of your struggles? But then what are your future goals and dreams as a, as a performer? I mean, for some, making it on Broadway is, that's the dream. But is there, is there more than that? Mm. I think my biggest struggle is running my own race, trying not to compare myself to others. Because in this industry, well, you know what? In every industry, I, I suppose that's, that's just life. Um, but especially in the rat race that is New York and, and trying to be a performer in New York where everyone is so talented. Um, it's hard for me not to look at very successful friends and say, oh, if only I could have that, or if only... It, it's hard not to, to compare yourself to others. It's hard to run my own race. So I think my biggest struggle is, is reminding myself that um, I just have to do me and let everybody else do them, and being happy for other people doesn't take away from where I am, you know? And, and that sounds so selfish when I say it out loud. <laughs> wow, that's, that sounds really terrible. But that's, those, that's my struggle, I think, is um, just trying to keep working. And I think that's my future goal. You know, when I first started as an actor, I think that my goals were were big things like playing lead roles on Broadway and winning Tony Awards and, 
and getting accolades and good reviews. And I think now that I've been doing it for a decade, my goals are, are different. Yes, you still, want, you still want to play lead roles on Broadway, but I think that my real goal is I want to create something new. I, w- I, want, to, I, want, to, I want to create a, a role in a new show. I want to, I want to keep working. I, I want to keep, um, I don't know, I don't want to have to be a waiter, I guess. You want to keep telling stories. I want to keep telling stories because that's what my passion is. And um, so it's, and also everything's different now with Lena. I think my, my real dream, my real goal is to be a good father. And so, um, <laughs> so that means working so that I can provide. So it's a different kind of, of goal for, for, my, um, for my career. Now I feel like she's my first priority. You come from a faith tradition that tells stories. So, and so is there a connection there for you? I mean, I certainly think that my background in the church, growing up in the church, certainly helped guide me to where I am now in a lot of ways. But um, just the church I grew up in, the, the pastor who baptized me, he, um, he would often do a first-person sermon, and he would dress he, he would be in costume, and he would do a sermon as Joseph, or he would do a sermon as David, and, and talk about their point of view. So um, just the, the faith tradition that I come from is extremely rooted in that storytelling, uh, that kind of sentimentality of trying to get into somebody else's mind and, and seeing people of... These, these legends that we have in the Bible, these, these larger-than-life figures sometimes, um, making them into real people. And I think that that has steered my faith, certainly, my, my faith journey, and I think that it has helped me in my career field because it's always about finding the real within the larger picture. You appear in my book um, with this story of you as when you're performing backstage with a performer, which in the book, his name is Dave. Um, And it's this crazy story that, I mean, it's almost surreal that basically comparing you as a Christian and your faith tradition to that of Nazis and like pure, pure evil. Um, And and, um, can you share a little bit about that story? Yeah, I was, I was reading a book by Tim Keller uh, the reason for God, and I had left it out on my on my uh, station, and ever after I did that, my friend Dave in the book is that what his name is? That's da- right, Dave. Yeah, in the book, he was he just started making a lot of comments about how stupid Christians were specifically. He he actually said anybody who believes in God is is stupid, but he was particularly pointed uh, when it came to Christianity. And Dave and I were friends. He was, he was my friend. We had gotten to know each other, and I certainly respected him as, a, as an actor. He was, you know, uh, he was just a good guy, but it was shocking then that he would make such mean-spirited statements about Christians when he knew that I was a Christian and, and that that was, um, I was re- reading a book um, about the reason for God, and... Um, so when everybody else had left, I pulled him aside and I said, Dave, I just want you to know that 
I understand how you feel, but I, I want you to know that when you say things like that, it really hurts my feelings. And he said, and I want you to understand that having you in this room is the equivalent of having a Nazi in this room. It is like having a Nazi sitting beside me in my dressing room. Oof. And I, I just, I wanted to cry. Not because of how he hurt me, but I wanted to cry because it was so evident how hurt he had been that somebody in his life had hurt him so deeply that that was how he felt. And I found out later from him, we, we patched things up and we're still friends now, um, but I found out later that he's a gay man and his father was a minister in Oklahoma and his parents kicked him out of the house at 16 when he told them that he was gay. And you know, when your own parents abandon you, I, I can't imagine that kind of pain and anguish. And I can't imagine being hurt in the name of Jesus like that. And so I think that that shaped how I approached, uh, I don't know, just talking about God in general. I think it, it, it changed me for sure because it gave me more empathy. Um, and to realize that you don't know how people around you are hurting. And... Your experience with faith may be something completely different than the person sitting right next to you. And so, you know, it's not about being politically correct. It's about, it's about how, do you, how do you help somebody? How do you, how do you love somebody? How, how best to love someone? That's what it's about, I think. Yeah. I think... Oh man, I don't I don't really know how to respond to that story. I mean, even when I wrote it in my book, I remember like calling you and being like, What what do I how do you how do you comment on that? I mean, it's one of those stories where you think it you think it's made up or you think it's overly dramatic or you think, Oh, that's yeah, yeah this that's, this can't be true. Right. Or he just has some issue that um he's he's just, you know, being using language to be dramatic or to make his point. But the, that, and I think you and I both, and this comes across in my book too, as, as actors, right, where there is not a huge um, religious component or, or representation within that world, let alone the, the amount of LGBT individuals within the acting world, um, that you and I have seen so much pain um, that, that those stories are common. Like, I, I can count friend after friend after friend who, when they came out, their religious family kicked them out of their house or no longer talked to them. Um, and so I know for me, that changed how I, how I lived my faith because if I responded, you know, as I was taught, was I, was, am I to respond the same way as Dave's parents responded? Um, and... Or is there a is there a better way um, of responding to people? Um, yeah, and I think there is. I think I think you're right. So I if people so. want to get a hold or follow what you're doing, how can people follow or learn? I mean, Twitter, social yeah, media. Yeah, uh, Twitter at jk underscore ready. 
and um, and on my website, jeffcrady.com. Any pictures of Lena up there or her performing yet online? Um, on YouTube, yes. Her stage debut, yes. She sang at a concert with Nikki and I last month. Yeah, that I'm surprised that hasn't gone viral yet, but it but it should. So <laughs> she's cute. She's, you know what? She's already light years beyond anything that uh, Nikki and I were doing when we were her age. So she's gonna have seven Tony Awards before we know it. That's brilliant. And then I'll interview her on this podcast. Yes, <laughs> she'll be up for it. She's got a lot to say already. All right. Well, thank you, friend. Thanks for this. And uh... thank you. It was my pleasure and honor. So here's to Jeff Crady. Music teacher turned Broadway star. Here's to the unglamorous life of being a tap dancing 10 foot dress. Here's to passionately telling stories to ninth graders in the audience seeing their first Broadway show and little Lena at bedtime. And here's to the why behind the what. Cheers. Cheers.